Look, he is returning with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes on earth will mourn because of him. This will certainly come to pass. Amen. He's combining two passages here. Told you we're going to be in the first testament law. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Daniel 7, 13 through 14, and Zechariah 12, 10. Zechariah 12, 10. The first part is Daniel 7. He is returning with the clouds. Now, why is this significant? The only thing that's above the clouds are supernatural divine beings, angels, pagan gods, and which we know as demons, and in Yahweh himself. Okay, that's the only thing that's above the clouds. So in the ancient world, cloud writers were known as gods, divine beings, angels. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of heaven. And in heaven, he sees all these strange beasts coming up out of the sea. We've talked about this. They're mutated hybrids, all this kind of stuff. And then he says, and I saw one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a phrase that means I am human. And what's blowing his mind right now is there's no humans in heaven. Christ hasn't died on the cross yet. Every vision of heaven that you have in the First Testament, there's no humans in heaven. Because only the righteous can go to heaven, Jesus says. And there's no one who's righteous, no, not one, without the blood of Christ. And Christ makes it very clear, the only way to the Father is through me. And he hasn't come yet. Every vision you have in Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 7, 1 Kings chapter 22, there's no humans there. And so Daniel's like, oh my gosh, there's actually a human here, but it can't be a human. He's kind of like a human, right? Because there's no humans in heaven. This is why it was so significant when Jesus turned to the thief on the cross and said, today you will be with me in paradise. The people of faith in the first testament went to heaven after the cross. There's this human, and he's walking up to the throne, but he's coming with the clouds, which means he's also God. God has made it very clear that he's not a human, and humans are not gods, and gods aren't human. And then he's coming to the throne without angels. The only way you can get to the throne of God is if you're sinless. Well, no one is sinless, right? Or you're surrounded by angels because they, 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 they communicate, they, they're a buffer between you and God so God's glory doesn't kill you. They absorb the glory of God. Or through the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, there's no angels surrounding him. Jesus hasn't died for him. So the only logical conclusion is that he's without sin. So John sees this human that has no sin, who is also God, approaching the throne. And then he puts out his hand, and he's given all authority, all power, all glory, all kingdoms of the earth, so that everyone will bow down and worship him. And who gave him that? Yahweh. Well, who's the only one that has all power, all glory, all sovereignty, and all the world worships and bows down to him? Yahweh. This is one of the clearest passages in the First Testament that Jesus is going to be God and human without sin, and he will rule over all things. For a long time, the Jews would say, I'm a son of man, I'm a son of man, I'm a son of man. Now, even women would say that because it's just a phrase that means I am human. When Daniel sees this vision, the Jews stop saying that. They're like, so Jews had a hard time with this. They're like, wait a minute, no, 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 no. This human cannot be God. God made it very clear, I am not a human. God made it very clear that you're not to worship humans. Anything in the sea or the sky or the earth or the below, like you don't... This is not God. This is not God. It can't be God. That's blasphemy. We went into exile because we worship other gods. This is not God. But at the same time, they were like, but Yahweh told us this. And we can't deny what Yahweh says because that's blasphemy. 
So what do you do with something that you don't understand, but you feel like it will be dangerous if you talk about it? You don't talk about it. Right? That's what we do in our churches or in our homes. If we don't like it and it's uncomfortable, but we know it's truth, but we don't know how it's true or how to reconcile or explain, we're to put it on a shelf in a box and lock it up and don't talk about it. And so nobody called themselves the Son of Man. Then Jesus comes along, and he never calls himself Messiah. He never calls himself God. Not directly. He, he definitely makes God claims. But he never says, I am God. But what he does say is, so that you may know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I say, get up and walk. So you may know the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. He, he says this all the time. And every time the Pharisees hear it, they're like, who do you think you are? Because what Jesus is not claiming to be, he's not claiming to be the king. He's not claiming to be the Messiah. He's not claiming to be God. He's not claiming to be human. He's claiming to be the sinless God, man, who sits on the throne of all the universe. And the Son of Man allows him to say all those titles all at once. And then he proves it by saying, So you may know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I said, get up and walk. Because only God can miraculously heal. But God would never let him miraculously heal somebody if he was a false prophet lying about who he is. So if he's able to heal that guy, then that means God is backing him and validating him, which means if he's calling himself the Son of God then he tr- or Son of Man, he truly is. So then at the end of his life, he's standing before Caiaphas, the high priest, at his trial. And Caiaphas says, do you say you're the king of the Jews? Which is really not that big of a deal. But Jesus doesn't say, yes, I'm the king of Jews. He goes way above that and says, I tell you the truth. You will see the Son of Man coming back with the clouds to judge you. And that's why Caiaphas rips his clothes and says, blasphemy, kill him. You heard it from his own mouth. You're like, why be son of man on clouds why would that get you killed because he's claiming to be the god man who is sinless who sits on the throne of yahweh and not only that he's coming with the clouds and he's going to judge you and only yahweh judges so then we get into acts chapter one right and jesus ascends into heaven and then when he gets into heaven it says he's taken up in heaven with the clouds And the angels come back and say, you will see him return the same way that he departed, meaning with the clouds. And that's when John kicks in and says, look, he is returning with the clouds. And all he has to say is with the clouds and everybody, John chapter 7 pops in their head, Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1, all these, Luke 24, all these things start popping in their head. And they know exactly that that word cloud, well, it paints an incredibly detailed, vivid picture of what Jesus is and who he is and what he's going to come back and do. And so now John has said, this is who he is and what he's done. This is what he's given us the right to be. But now we know he's coming back. And he's coming back with the authority of this king over all the world. And then he's going to judge all those kings. All these kings who tried to raise their mountain higher than other people, Micah chapter 4 says that God's mountain rises above all other mountains. And he will judge the gods and the kings of the earth, Micah chapter 4 says. And so this is what John is doing. You see, this is the benefit of being the last book in the Bible. You can use one word and it paints a huge picture. When, when Genesis, Moses is writing, he's got to do a lot to paint that picture in your mind. But now John just has to say clouds, son of man, Christ. 
and it communicates so much. And that's why we had to like put all these threads together and form the tapestry. So when we hear this word, it triggers. That's what he's doing. You guys ever heard that joke where these guys are sitting in prison and a new guy comes to prison and they're like, they're like, oh, we like to tell jokes around this time, right? And so the, the so some guy's like, number 64. And everybody's like, ha, 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 ha. And the other guy's like, numbers are like 14, right? And they're like, ha, ha, ha. And they're all laughing. The guy's like, what is going on? Why are these numbers so funny? He's like, well, we've been here for so long and we told so many jokes that we've got them all numbered. And rather than just telling the joke, we just say the number and everybody remembers, right? And they just start laughing. That's, but that's what the Second Testament's doing. The, the, you've got... 65 books already written that have painted all these pictures and all these stories. And all you have to do is say a phrase, and it triggers all these things. That's why when Paul comes along and says, For all sin fallen short of the glory of God, people aren't like, Oh, deep. They, it, what comes to their mind? The Tower of Babylon, the flood of the world, everybody thinking only evil all the time, of you know, Cain killing his brother, and, and the, the golden calf worship, and, and, and the, the kings going rogue and rebelling, and Right? All that comes to mind. They have thousands of stories, thousands of years that prove for all short. And when Paul's writing that, that's his conclusion after reading this. Paul didn't just get this really cool theological idea and decide to write it and know that it's true because it comes from God. It came from God because he read the First Testament and studied it and understood it and then summarized that theme, that tapestry, that thread into one phrase. For all have sinned falling short of the glory of God. There's not one who is righteous, not one. What's my evidence? Thousands of years of human history recorded in these books. And everybody, all these New Testament writers have to do is trigger you. And that's why we have to be students of everything else before we get to the next book, because there's triggers that are happening, and you're losing it if you don't understand the picture. Everyone will see him. That comes from Zechariah. Um, chapter 12, verse 10. And the idea is that no one will... And I don't think it has this idea of like, it does. But I don't think it's just like, well, everybody will see him. Like CNN will be there with live coverage. And it will just interrupt everything and bring the news to you. It's kind of like the assassination of JFK or 9-11. It's like everybody was seeing it, right? It's just like the, the cameras were everywhere to grab it right then and there. And we saw it. And there was nobody who did not know. And I do think it means, but, but what it communicates is this is good, more important is this is going to be a world event. It is going to be clear without a doubt what is happening and who it is and how it's going. And then the most importantly, it's going to affect everybody. It's going to affect everybody. Even those who pierced them. Now you're like, wait a minute, they're all dead. So how are they going to see them? The phrase is, even those who stand against him. Even though those, if he came today, the people in the world today who would hate him so much that they would kill him. Every generation, there's people who would kill him. And so even those who completely oppose him and do not want him to come, will not submit to him, they will even see it, and it will affect them. Because remember, he's coming with the clouds to judge. And he's going to crush every mountain and establish his mountain forever, the cosmic mountain, the true city. And all the tribes on the earth will mourn because of him. It's not going to always it's not going to be a good day for everybody. It's not going to be a good day for everybody. There will be judgment. Why is there going to be judgment? 
Because a good father who loves his people must punish sin. Right? One of the most horrific things that happens in the Bible is when Dinah is violated sexually by the people of Shechem and Jacob just gets maddened. That's it. When Ammon, the son of David, sexually violates his sister Tamar and David just gets angry. If you got violated physically or sexually or or financially speaking or verbally and your parents are just like, ah, that sucks. Now, no, you don't want them to go off and kill the people and that kind of stuff because it doesn't do you good to have a dad who's in prison or a mom who's in prison. But you want at least to get so angry that they have to hold themselves back to stop them from doing something things and they're going to do everything in their power legally or whatever to defend you, right? And so a good God will punish the evil of the world. And sometimes it's hard for us to accept that God punishes people because we've had it relatively good in America. And don't get me wrong, there are horrific horrific crimes that are happening in America. And many of you have experienced it or witnessed it. I'm not downplaying any of that. But still, not on a regular daily basis like genocide of the Jews or the 40 million Indian people that were genocided by um, the Muslims and and the the Tutsis and the Tutsis and the Khmer Rouge of Cambodia and all these, the Russia, the, 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 the Red Massacre of China by the hands of the Japanese. Like, we have never, where we have to flee our country and live in a refugee camp. Like, we don't experience stuff like that, largely speaking. And yes, I know kids and children and homes are being violated in a horrific place. And I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the everyday normal American. God says, I, I will, I, it's not going to be a good day for everybody. And I have to do this because I'm a good God. I'm a good, I'm a good God who cares about my people. As he said to Cain, your brother's blood is crying out for justice from the soil. This will certainly come to pass. Amen. There's no getting around this. It is coming. You can ignore it. You can wait. But it is coming. When you are facing persecution and the pressure from the world to compromise your faith, there is a throne above all thrones that will bring all things into account. Jesus is the one with the Father Jesus is one with the Father as the divine King and the one with the covenant people as high priest. So as God on the throne, He is one with the Father. But as a human who became priest and walked among us, He's one with us. And so He is the one that makes us one with the Father. He is the one who is in control of all things in heaven and on earth, past and future, and will work for those the redemption of his people. Therefore, one should place their faith and allegiance in him despite the pressure to compromise in the face of the world's ideologies and persecution. Jesus will one day bring them under judgment and will vindicate his people just as he was vindicated by his Father. The spiritual and material realm have become uniquely joined and the blessings of eternity can be experienced in space, time, and matter. He is the one that you can place your trust in. He is the one you can place your hope in. Verse 8. And then he wraps up these descriptions of who he is. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says Yahweh God, the one who is and who was and who is still to come, the all-powerful. This phrase, Alpha and Omega, I think we know by now, but Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. But it, it's a mirrorism. Okay? We talked about this. This, this this is the mirrorism, and that he's not just saying, 
I'm at the very beginning of everything, and I'm at the very end of everything. But you're kind of on your own in the middle. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It's forms of mirrorism. It's two parts for the whole. So if I say, well, that projector, there's nothing but nuts and bolts. Well, that's not true. It's plastic and wiring and glass and that kind of stuff. But I, I, but that gets boring, right? Like, that's plastic and wiring. And, da, 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 and you're like, okay, just get on with it, right? Or I'm flesh and blood. No, you're not. You also have bone. I mean, that would be kind of weird if you're just flesh and blood and you're just this mass of tissue <laughs> rolling around, right? So you, 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 you mentioned two parts to refer to the whole. And, and so what he's saying is he's the alpha and the omega and everything in between. And to emphasize this, he says who is and was and who will to be or will to come. He's the only one who's been there. He's the only one that will be there. And he's the only one here with us now. He is the all-powerful. Amen. This is John's introduction to Jesus. Not an introduction that anybody really needs to know if they're part of the seven churches, but an introduction they have to be reminded of in the face of the temptation to compromise the faith. And this is why Paul says, I preach the gospel to those who are saved. Because even we need to be reminded of what we embraced to the pre- compared to the pressures of the world to walk away. And even we can go deeper. Does that make sense? Why is verse 7 indented or in parentheses, depending on what translation you're in or whatever? There are multiple ways that the authors of the Bible get your attention and say, this is very important. One of them is, if they spend more time on something than everything else, that's their way of saying, this is important. If they repeat something over and over again, it's important. If they repeat something over and over again and then break the pattern with something really unique, that's important. But another way they do it is with poetry. When you have prose, and prose are like, and then, and then, and then, or, or it's um, a, a, a theological treatise like this, where it's a bunch of ideas strung together. When you go into poetry, it's like, ooh, take, pay attention. Like, right? We know this. Musicals, right? If you ever thought about musicals happening in real life, you'd be so weirded out. So people are just doing life, and they're talking about things, and they're like, hey, what did you do this weekend? You're like, well, let me tell you, right? And you're like, well. (laughs) But that gets your attention, right? So when you switch genres from just prose to poetry, it grabs everybody's attention. And so the author is going to poetry to grab your attention to say this is important, more important than everything else here. And then not only he's also quoting scripture rather than alluding to it, so grabs your attention. Okay, I challenge you to do that at work. <laughs> Just do it at work. Just start breaking out things. See what people do. Well, you might not take that. Your boss might fire you. But um, because all this stuff is important. All this is heavy. Okay, so this is our version of like putting something in bold. Or if you want to go really ridiculously annoying, capital letters, bold, and underline, and italics all at the same time, you're like, okay, now you just made it look nasty. No offense to those who have done that. So <laughs> he's getting your attention. This is John saying, remember who you put your faith in. Because when you go back in the world of the everyday normal life, and life kind of sucks, and we live in a cancel culture, and we live in a culture that wants to mock you. And you have family members who might even walk away from you. 
it's really hard to remember who he is and why you came to him and what he's offered you. And this is why in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is writing to people that he's been with for 40 years. And for the first three or four chapters, he says, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck. You stiff-necked, hard-hearted, callous people. You will never change. That's why your hearts need to be redeemed and renewed and transformed. And then he goes into the prophet that will one day come. But in the middle of that, the reason he's saying this is not just to say, you suck, you suck, but he's going through the history of how much they rebelled, and yet despite that, God did this, and God did that, and God did this for you, and he did this, and he put up with you, and he was more patient than you've ever been with even your own children, let alone all this rebellion, right? And the point that Deuteronomy is making, it's the only book that you really get the heart of God for that many chapters. And the whole point is he makes this main point, remembrance is the key to faithfulness. Remembrance is the key to faithfulness. Our lives are busy, hectic. We live in a pinball machine of activities and programs that smack you around like paddles and lights and distractions of social media and movies that just take your attention. And it's so hard to remember who we are and where we belong to and what we're not a part of. And this is why then he goes on to chapter 6 and says, where does it begin? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall know their gods before you. Bind this to your foreheads, your doorposts, your arms. Teach this to your children when you get up and when you walk and when you eat and when you lie down. Make sure that this is known. He basically says every time you get a chance to remind yourself, do it. The modern-day equivalent is take these cards onto your steering wheel while you drive. Write them with Sharpie markers on your windows. Put posters all around your house. Every time your children say, why is that there? Tell them about who God is. Right? Children ask why all the time. Why not fill your house with things of God? And when your grandchildren come over and they're like, why, why, what's that, what's that, what's that? What a perfect opportunity to say, let me tell you about our God. And that's what he's saying, because if you don't do that, Life will fill your house, and life will fill your day, and life will fill your mind. And then you won't remember who you are connected to and what the good things he's done. Not that you've gone amnesia on him, and then you'll be easily distracted by the world. This is what John is saying. Remembrance is the key to faithfulness. Remembrance is the key to faithfulness. Paul says, meditate on the word of God day and night. Make sense? Hanging. This is what it means to be a Christian and who we follow. 